Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the comfort it brings and the encouragement it gives us. And I pray that that's what would be accomplished tonight as we examine this this wonderful book, that you would uh, encourage us, strengthen our hearts, and give us clarity um, regarding your plan for the future. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, because Revelation is full of symbolic uh, imagery, it allows interpreters quite a bit of latitude and even, I'd say, creativity in how they understand it. And so it's not hard to detect personal or doctrinal biases as you read how different people interpret Revelation. And so we want to exercise caution when interpreting these texts that are full of symbolic imagery. But we also need to keep in mind that uh, God gave us Revelation to reveal to us his plan for the future. He wants us to understand what his plan is. So he's not trying to so much veil it as he is to reveal it. And I think that's, so we need to keep that intention. We may misunderstand some symbolism because it's not clear to us for one reason or another, but God does want us to understand it. And so we want to approach Revelation with the assumption that it can be understood and that the Lord will help us understand it if we handle it rightly. So we might be able to make a good educated guess as to what a symbol is referring to, but we also need to be open to the fact that um, we could be wrong. So, and I say that because unless a symbol is explicitly explained, we have to hold our conclusion somewhat tentatively. And there are some symbols that are explained. So like the seven lamps refer to the seven spheres of God. Um, there are other things that are specifically explained, but not everyone is. And so... When it's not specifically explained, we have to make a good, educated guess, understanding it could be wrong. So I would suggest that that what we should primarily rely on when we are seeking to interpret these symbols is the immediate context of what's going on, and then also how those symbols are used, or words, how these words are used in other parts of Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. I think... Those two things should dominate our interpretation of these uh, symbolic passages. Uh, So as we unpack the rest of Revelation, uh, I just want you guys to know these are the primary things I'm looking at as I'm making my interpretation of these symbols. Uh, And it's not newspapers or the Internet or even theology books, though those things could be helpful. But I'm really trying to stick to just what's specifically revealed in the Word of God in order to avoid uh, making unwarranted assumptions. And I'll try to just make that clear even as we go through. Now, there, there are two main views on how to interpret this chapter. Many understand this chapter as um, presenting a panorama of the period of time from the birth of Christ up until the return of Christ, so what we might call the church age. So they think, This chapter is covering that whole period. Others believe that this chapter parallels Christ's teaching. Oh, sorry. Uh, Other people believe that this chapter presents just simply judgments that are going to happen in the future. So all of its future, all of it happens, usually what interpreters say, after the, the rapture has taken place. And then still others believe that the chapter parallels Christ's teaching on the end times given in... All of that discourse. So if you 
recall Matthew 24, Mark 13, Jesus explains really what, what's going to take place in the future. Uh, from John's time, uh, or it could refer to either John's time up until the return of Christ or just the period right before the return of Christ. And so I just want to direct your attention there first. If you would turn to Mark 13, um, begin reading at verse 3. Mark 13, verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. And I believe the seven seals here uh, parallel Christ's instruction on Mount Olivet that that we just read. But I also believe that Christ is specifically in this discourse in Mark 13... Uh, speaking of the time immediately preceding uh, what we would call the seven-year tribulation. So some people interpret uh, Revelation 6 as well as the Olivet Discourse, again, spanning the whole time of the church age. Uh, I think it's best to understand all the Discourse as well as uh, Revelation 6, uh, limiting itself immediately to and then, I would actually say, including the tribulation. And so hopefully they'll make That'll become clear as we go through it. Uh, For instance, Revelation 6, all the discourse, note that war, famine, and plague are going to characterize the end. And we could say there's been a lot of war, famine, and plagues throughout Christian history the last 2,000 years. However, it seems best to understand that these are going to be acutely bad, particularly bad, right before the years uh, immediately preceding Christ's return. And so it's helpful for us, again, to remember the context of Revelation 6. Recall that in the previous chapter, Revelation 5, and even chapter 4, Jesus is depicted as the only one who is worthy of worship. And he, 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 it also he's the, because he's the only one who can take the scroll and break its seals. And if you recall, that scroll represents God's plan uh, for history being fulfilled, particularly his promises, his covenant promises that, is, that he has made. Uh, John weeps because it appears that all these promises that God had made would not be able to come to pass. And so he weeps until one is found, namely the lion of the tribe of Judah, the, the lamb. And he is worthy to open the, the, the seals. And so as the seals are broken on the scroll and God's plan is unveiled in the rest of Revelation... Um, it shows us piece by piece how God's going to bring his purposes to a conclusion. And so in the chapter before us, the first four seals correspond to the four horses which are released. And then this is followed by the martyr's plea for justice with the fifth seal, a number of cataclysmic disasters in the sixth seal, and then the seventh seal uh, prepares us for more judgments to come. Let's look at the first seal in verses 1 and 2. 
Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, I think it's really, it's, it's, it's remarkable that uh, when each of these next four seals are opened, that a living creature, one of the four living creatures that surround the throne that we were introduced to in Revelation 4, cries out with a loud voice, come. So that happens four times. One of the living creatures cries us out. And I believe the point here is that um, it's, these creatures, again, symbolize creation. And so when the four living creatures cry out, it's as if cre- all of creation is crying out, come, Lord Jesus. Uh, as you know, since Adam ushered in sin to the world and death through, through sin, all of creation has been longing as it says in Romans 8, for the revealing of the sons of God. I'll just actually read that passage. Romans 8, verse 19. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so when these four living creatures say, come, again, it shows us that it's not just Christians who are longing for the return of Christ, but all of creation is longing for it. All of creation wants to be set free from its bondage to destruction. In order to be perfectly restored. And so then, of course, they say, come, and the seal is broken, and John sees, therefore, a white horse. And the rider who possesses a bow, a crown, and it says he goes forth to conquer and conquering and to conquer. And many interpreters, especially premillennialists, believe this is referring to the Antichrist. And they believe that he is a, a parody of the real Christ, since Christ is also revealed as coming on a white horse in Revelation 19. And he also holds a bow, which we know is a weapon of war, and he's conquering. And because of that, the bow uh, and the conquering, they believe that he's a, a sort of uh, conquering warlord. But I think it's better to understand that this is actually symbolizing Christ himself. And actually symbolizing the proclamation of the gospel spreading throughout the entire world before these judgments come to pass. And I'll say why. First of all, the word conquer that is used here is a phrase that we've come across many times already in the book of Revelation. And it always refers to the saints who overcome, who have victory, who don't deny Christ, to endure in the midst of temptation. The word, the word is a very positive word. And so to just assume that now it's being used in a negative fashion, I think is a, is a bit of a stretch. Again, it's the word Nike, or where we get the word Nike. And I think actually every time it's used, um, except one, when it is directly referred to, um, I think by the beast, 
who, who conquers uh, saints later on. I believe every time, it, except for that one, it's used positively. So it makes most sense that the word would be, have a positive connotation here. Uh, secondly, Jesus communicated in the Olivet Discourse that the end would not come until the gospel spreads to every nation. And so it makes sense that if he's waiting, that the first, that since the book of these seals represent the fulfillment of his plans, that the very first thing that would take place is the spread of the gospel to every nation. And so um, I believe that's what's being symbolized. The gospel has gone forth. People have been saved by the gospel of peace. And Christ, therefore, has conquered through the gospel. And then the end comes. It, it inaugurates the beginning of this tribulation period. And the fact, thirdly, the fact that the writer is riding a white horse, I think further indicates that this should be seen as a positive, uh, a good person. Because every other place in Revelation, white has a good connotation. Um, Jesus has white hair, Revelation 1.14, the White clothes are given to the saints, uh, and uh, white stone in 2.17, Jesus is, is, or an angel, uh, is depicted as, I think it's an angel, maybe, um, no, it is Jesus in Revelation 14.14, 14, sitting on a white cloud. There's a great white throne, Revelation 20.11, and the writer also is depicted wearing a crown. Uh, similar to the previous word, whenever we've seen the word crown used before, it's used in a positive sense. The crowns are what are given to the saints, right, if they overcome. And so this is, again, it's associated with the conquering. So it appear a crown would appear to be a positive thing. Uh, Christ himself is depicted wearing this crown in Revelation 14.14. 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a golden crown on his head. And a sharp sickle in his hand. But it does beg the question, what do we make of the bow? I mean, because a bow is a weapon of war. So why would Christ have a bow if this is referring to Christ? I think it's remarkable that this bow is not accompanied by any arrows. Um, it may be just the, bow, the arrows aren't mentioned. But it's remarkable that a bow already has a, a clear connotation in Scripture. Um, in Genesis chapter uh, uh, seven and eight, when God destroyed the world with a flood, he gave Noah a sign of peace that he would not destroy the world that way anymore by putting a bow in the sky, hanging a, a war bow in the sky um, with no arrows to symbolize peace. And it's noteworthy that a few chapters earlier, an emerald rainbow was said to surround the throne of God in chapter four. Now, I realize that the word for rainbow and bow are not necessarily the same, but the whole point of the rainbow is it symbolizes a war bow. So it has the same connotation. And I think even there in, in uh, Revelation 4, that rainbow that surrounds the throne, the emerald rainbow, is a symbol of the gospel of peace. I believe that's what's being symbolized. And I think that's what's going forth here. The bow that, that the conqueror is using is the gospel. The bow is a representative of the gospel. The final reason I believe this is referring to Christ himself is um, the two words that are used to describe the conquering. The writer went out conquering a present active participle 
and to conquer, aorist, active, subjunctive. The, the verbs convey that the writer's going out in a conquering way, making steady progress with the purpose of ultimately conquering the world. In other words, he progressively conquers until he ultimately conquers. And the only one who will definitively conquer the world is Christ. So besides the presence of the bow, the main reason that interpreters believe that this is referring to an antichrist is because they, they believe the book should be interpreted in a strictly chronological fashion. And they, they assume that the breaking of the seals must take place after a rapture has taken place, even though no such event is actually mentioned in Revelation. And so unless one believes the rapture and the resurrection are the same event, which, of course, if that was the case, that takes place later on in Revelation 19. But those who, again, believe this is referring to the Antichrist assume it has already taken place, and therefore this cannot refer to Christ or the gospel going forth with his people. So it must refer to Antichrist. And so the presence of the bow then really overshadows all the other symbols that are used here in this verse. And I think it's also noteworthy that the text makes no indication that there's anything pernicious. There's, there's anything sneaky or false about this writer. It just says he's going forth with a bow and a crown to conquer uh, the world. Um, he's just assumed by these interpreters to be false. Not because of clues in the text, but because the presupposed theological system demands that it must refer to somebody besides Christ. So the system is driving the interpretation rather than the clues within the text. And to be fair, such an interpretation could be right. This really this could refer to the Antichrist. Um, and I say this because, again, unless a, a, the meaning of a symbol is directly conveyed, uh, no one can be certain. But I do believe God provides enough clues in the context and throughout Scripture for us to come to a right understanding of the symbolism. Again, I think the strongest clues are the, the, the way conquer is used earlier in Revelation, the spread of the gospel being the thing that will inaugurate the beginning of the end, as Jesus says in all that discourse, the significance of the color white throughout Revelation, um, along with the bow and crowns and the purpose of the writer to conquer parallels what the gospel actually does throughout the world. And I think all these things believe, at least lead me to believe that we should understand this, right, uh, this, white, this rider on a white horse to refer to Christ himself and the conquering of the gospel that triggers the beginning of the end. Well, what about the next three seals that are symbolized by horsemen going forth? Um, I believe these four horsemen of the apocalypse all signal the events that will take place immediately prior to the seven-year tribulation. So again, the gospel spreading to all the corners of the earth, to every tribe, tongue, and nation, triggers the beginning of the end. And that's what happens with these other three horsemen. According to Daniel 9.27, the seven-year tribulation is going to be started when the Antichrist comes to power and he brokers some sort of peace treaty um, with most of the world. Um, such an event isn't mentioned in Revelation here, but the cataclysms that are described in the, the fifth through seventh seals parallel the same 
cataclysms that will take place within the tribulation as that's explained in other parts of Scripture. So again, I think the first four seals represent what's going to immediately take place prior to the Antichrist rise to power. And then the last two um, uh, describe the tribulation itself, what takes place during the tribulation. So let's look at the second seal. Uh, It signifies war. Verse 3. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another on a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. There's really no debate as to what this is referring to. Um, it's referring to war. We know that because it's made explicit. Um, he wields a great sword, and it said, This writer is granted to take peace from the earth. So that men would slay one another. And this parallels what Jesus said would happen in Mark 13. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but this is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. So in Mark 13, Jesus says the days immediately preceding the tribulation will be characterized by, uh, he describes it as the beginning of the birth pangs. And they'll be characterized by false messiahs coming, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. And although to some extent all of these things have taken place within the world since the first century, um, I believe that at this point in time, these things are going to be particularly acute. And I say that primarily because of Christ declaring that there is going to many, there are going to be many false messiahs that arise and mislead many. Um, although there have been false messiahs since Christ rose from the dead, I wouldn't say there's been many false messiahs. And I certainly wouldn't say that those false messiahs have misled many. Uh, Most of those messiahs have not been uh, very effective in leading people astray, though, you know, there's some exceptions. And so I believe it's probably best to interpret this uh, being something that's going to take place because of all the the wars and the rumors of wars, the tension. People are going to be looking for a messiah and there's going to be false messiahs that mislead many. So, again, I think what Christ is talking about are the, the days or the years immediately prior to the seven-year tribulation. And uh, that's why this is, war is described. Thirdly, there's going to be famine. The third seal, famine is depicted. Uh, There's a a rider on a black horse, and it says uh, that the, the man had a pair of scales in his hand. But what, the reason we know this is referring to famine, uh, an age of a period of famine, is because of the um, the voice of the center of the four living creatures that says, "A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarters of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine." Um, the value of wheat and barley signifies famine-like conditions. So, for one day's wages, that's what a denarius is. Um, you know, today's I don't know what today's wage would be, $200 or so for a day's wage. Um, 
one day's wage would buy one quart of flour, of wheat, or three quarts of barley. That's very expensive grain. <laughs> I mean, uh, how much is a pound of flour? What's it cost anybody? Two. Okay, two dollars. All right, it's gonna be like astronomically more expensive. Two hundred dollars, right? So, um, seriously, famine-like conditions. Now, some believe that because of this, the, the second reference of not damaging the oil and the wine, that that they believe that this uh, signifies there's going to be some economic disparity. That uh, that there are people in living in luxury who want to protect their oil and wine. Well, there's other people at the bottom who are just trying to scrape together to survive. Um, so they would typically people who draw this out want to describe this as like the uh, what we've seen in, in countries under communism, where you have uh, the elite that have possess all this all these luxuries and there's everybody else. Um, but I think more likely the call to not damage the oil and the wine is simply underscoring the famine conditions. And I say that because oil and wine really aren't luxury items. Um, this, it was common fare. You need oil in order to make something of the wheat that you would use to make bread. Uh, the wine was just common table fare. It's what people would normally drink. So I don't think we should assume this is a luxury, uh, even though, of course, today people could spend tons of money on fancy oil and wine. But it, and even in the ancient world, it was pretty standard to, to be able to have oil and wine at the table. And we see that, of course, in the Gospels. So the famine conditions, I think, just simply heighten the value of oil and wine because you need, especially the oil, to, you need that to, to make bread. The fourth seal represents death. So the lamb broke the fourth seal. And what comes forth is an ashen horse or a pale horse. And we know it represents death, again, because it says so in verse 8. Moreover, what this writer brings about is a quarter of the earth's population is killed. And what brings about such death? Well, the text actually mentions four things. War, famine, and pestilence. That means that's plague or disease. And then also wild beasts. And again... These things have taken place since uh, the early church uh, began. However, it, it appears that this is going to be particularly bad the years prior to Christ's coming because at no point in history has a quarter of the earth's population been destroyed. So again, I think this is talking about still some time in the future, but not quite yet tribulation period. What brings in the tribulation period. So again, after the, the opening of the uh, first four seals, the, the text says nothing about the rise of an Antichrist. He's not actually mentioned until chapter 13. Instead, what's signified is the completion of the numbers of martyrs by the fifth seal and then worldwide terror by the sixth seal. But the reason I think that this is uh, these first four seals mark what's going to happen immediately prior to the tribulation is I think... Uh, that's, that, again, starts with the Antichrist making a some sort of treaty or covenant with many people, probably many nations is what's being referred to in Daniel 9, 27. Um, I believe that these, um, the death, the famine, the pestilence, the war, these are the things that actually 
are going to be what ushers in the Antichrist to power. People are going to be desperate to trust in somebody, some sort of false messiah, which is what the Antichrist is, and therefore uh, be deceived into following him. Well, this brings us to the fifth seal. The fifth through seventh seals differ from the first four in that they are not depicted uh, with any horsemen, nor is there any living creature that says amen, which suggests that there is some disconnect. There's some dissonance with the first four. Uh, it may signal that there's a, this is a different period of time, uh, a time distinct from the first four seals. And in fact, I do believe that's the case. I believe, again, the first four refer to period prior to the tribulation and then uh, the fifth, sixth and seventh seals signifying what happens during the tribulation and, and up until the end. And again, that these first four signal or pave the way for Antichrist to come to power. And I say this part, primarily because of what's symbolized in Revelation twelve seventeen. If you flip over a couple pages and look there. It says the dragon, that represents Satan, of course, became furious with the woman, who I believe represents Israel, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So that refers to Christians. All right, so after the Antichrist comes to power through the power of the beast, he will kill any of those who receive, refuse to receive, uh, who refuse to worship him, and who refused to deny Christ. If you look at uh, chapter 13, verse 7, and the verses following, it says, The Antichrist was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone has to be taken captive, to captivity goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So I think it's best, therefore, to understand this sixth seal. And uh, also, sorry, the, 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 it's best to understand this fifth seal. Um, and the accompanying sixth seal is a time describing what takes place during the tribulation period. Um, here in, uh, in the fifth seal, again, martyrs are crying out for, for judgment. And Jesus says they have to wait until that, that period, of, for, until their martyrdoms is completed, till all the martyrs have been fulfilled. Well, there's going to be martyrs during the tribulation. So I think it's signifying a time during the tribulation. And we see that in Revelation 12 and Revelation 13, that Christians will be martyred for their faith because they won't worship the beast. And then the sixth seal in verses 12 through 17 generally describes all those cataclysmic judgments that are going to be revealed throughout the rest of the book during the tribulation period. Um, and I say that partially because what's described in verses 12 through 17 are events that also parallel other things that take place in the rest of the book, suggesting these are not separate events, but it's describing, again, the whole of these cataclysmic judgments. And then the details of them will be filled out later on. So the sixth seal represents these cataclysmic judgments that are worldwide. Um, 
For instance, uh, there's a, a great earthquake that hits Jerusalem in chapter 11, 13. It's part of the sixth trumpet judgment. Well, an earthquake is mentioned here as well. Uh, also, Revelation 11 um, or 16, there's an earthquake that takes part of the Boljo judgments. Uh, except that this, that earthquake is going to be so severe, uh, no mountains or islands are going to be left after it hits. So, I believe the earthquakes that are described in Revelation 6, um, verses 12 and following, again, just generally describe some of these other events that are going to take place later. In chapter 8, 12, um, with the fourth trumpet judgment, a third of the celestial objects will be darkened, just as uh, you have stars falling from the sky here. It says in Revelation 8, 12, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. So you have these celestial objects being darkened. Similarly, in chapter 16, it says all the wicked of the earth are going to curse God because of these judgments. And remarkably, the cry of the people in verses 16 and 17 is actually reminiscent of Jesus' words in Luke 23:29. Remember when he declared the days are coming when they'll say blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed then they will begin to say to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us and in, G- in that text jesus is saying you shouldn't be so much um what you should be mourning about is the judgment that's coming on israel that's what you should be most concerned about not what's going on with me So people will understand during these last days that the cataclysmic judgments are the wrath of God. They're going to know that all these things are happening because of the wrath of the Lamb, as it says. These are coming from God because they've refused to worship and instead they've worshipped the beast. And then the question at the end of the chapter that's asked, who is able to stand? That's the question that actually gets answered in the next chapter during the, the, the... Um, the interlude preceding the opening of the seventh seal. Uh, The answer essentially is that only those who are sealed by God himself will be able to stand during the wrath of the Lamb. We'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, again, I pray that you would give us insight and understanding to these things, especially because they are complicated and difficult. and, And Lord, we can... Uh, be be so easily deceived, not just by um, various uh, approaches to interpretation, but but we can be deceived by our own sin. We can easily be led astray and not be on alert when these things take place. And knowing that you will return and that you have called us to be on the alert, Lord, I pray that you would um, clarify our thinking especially as it seems that things are just getting um, particularly acute right now in the world with the war in Israel and Ukraine and um, Russia and China uh, saber-rattling. Lord, even the the chaos that exists in our own nation. Lord, I, I do pray that you would deepen our awareness, our clarity regarding your purposes for the end time so that we'd be prepared and we would not be taken off guard when this happens. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.